0: okay hi everyone and welcome back to the official dream dinner party podcast
1: i'm your host ross bullen i'm your other host gary all and with us today wait ross you have you want to explain to forgive yeah. us listeners this is our first this, this, this is, is our first inaugural time.
0: <laughs> Our our new year our New Year's resolution to not mess up the podcast <laughs> lasted about ten seconds, so we can uh, commence. Our, our joining us today, our our guest for our, our first episode of of twenty twenty three, uh, is Mike Sachs. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, Mike's a a a really well known and 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 a well established comedy writer and and writer about comedy writers the author of, I think, 10 comedy books, uh, according to his website, at least maybe, maybe it's 11 by now. And uh, among those are, are 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 two really interesting books of interviews that Mike has done with all kinds of comedy writers. I mean, from, from all different genres, different periods, those are, here's the kicker and, and poking a dead frog. And, and I have to say, as someone who's like interested in comedy writing, but it has never even thought of doing it professionally, this was those books are some of the best things I've ever read for learning about how comedy writers think uh, and how comedy works. Um, and they're just really entertaining, too. Mike asked great questions of of, of some interesting, a ton of interesting people. Also, uh, author of a collection of short humor and, and recently a, a series of like, well, not really a series because they're not necessarily connected, but a, a, a group of really weird, funny, comedic novels Um Two of which have have just been uh released yesterday. Uh those are, are Randy and uh and Stinker Let's Loose. Uh and and I know for 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 Stinker at least, there's a, a really like a star-studded audiobook version out there with John Hamm, uh Rhea Seahorn. Uh Mike, do you want to talk a little bit about the books just before we kind of get into um into our our, our podcast? Sure. Uh a
2: few years ago, I was sort of going through a difficult time. Um and I both professionally and my personal life, professionally, in the sense that I was writing a lot for magazines online. I just really wasn't happy doing it. Um, A lot of these pieces from magazines were sort of tethered to current events. And they weren't ideas that I had, they were the ideas the editors had. And I just, it wasn't fun. It wasn't really, you know, like a lot of Trump uh, style stuff, which just didn't interest me. So I just, you know, by doing a lot of interviews, I came across some common themes with people who have made a career in comedy. And one of those themes was at a certain point, you have to put aside what you don't want to do and do what you want to do, regardless of whether you have any idea if it's going to work uh, or whether it will be successful. So I I had had an idea for a while to do a novelization based on a non-existent movie. Now, the first idea I had was to do a novelization based on the Zapruder film. And I actually tried (laughs) doing that and oddly, it was a little dark. It wouldn't really uh, zing with comedy. But I wanted also to sort of go after a very specific time in American pop culture, which was late seventies, very Southern American pop culture, where everything was based on Southern culture, specifically truckers. Truckers were the new cowboys. You know, so and they
1: were they were everywhere.
2: Uh, it was incredible. I mean, I don't know if people who weren't alive then realize this, but it was, I mean, where I grew up, Virginia and Maryland, then New Orleans, it was as big as Star Wars. Smoking and the Bandit and CB movies and Hooper and all those movies were absolutely huge. I mean, they were truly American heroes. And in some ways, I preferred that and still do to a Star Wars, you know, Smoking and the Bandit. There was um, a looseness to those movies. There was a punk aspect to it. I always felt like I was a part of a fun gang and it was almost like they weren't even aware that they were being shot or videotaped or filmed. And there was always these uh, bloopers at the end, which you never, ever, ever saw in, in the, on the big screen. It was such a unique thing. So there was a looseness to it that I loved, but it, it hadn't really been satirized or looked into. I think if you we not. If you didn't grow up around that time, it's sort of lost. You know, it's like being a fan of doo-wop. If you didn't grow up around doo-wop, you're not going to necessarily be a fan. But I'm a huge fan of that, and I wanted to take it on because I hadn't really seen it done. So I decided to write a novelization to a non-existent 1977 movie called Stinker Let's Loose, which features CB Radio. Uh, there was always an orangutan in these movies, usually flipping off a sheriff or blowing a raspberry, just like real life. Yeah yeah i thought it'd be right i thought it would be fun uh to take on that so i combined the novelization with uh the late 70s pop culture and i thought i'll just put this out no one's going to be interested that would be my agent or anyone else it may sell 100 copies but that's fine
1: so so did you have fun writing it when you you, you committed to all right I'm, I'm, i'm going to do cb and trucker culture yeah, I mean, did you have, did you have other ideas like hey Rubik's Cube or Space Invaders or like when you landed on that were you certain that that's what you were supposed to do and was it fun? no
2: I wasn't certain I had okay. never written anything about it or had never satirized it before but I had more time I had separated with my wife and I was alone and drinking a lot and this is the first book I wrote sort of drunk to be honest I didn't edit it or rewrite it drunk but I wrote it drunk. I put it out in six months i would come home every night work on it for a few hours it took six months to put out and i did have a lot of fun with it i mean there were you know when there are no rules except your own you it can be a disaster or it can be like finding uh nirvana and it just felt so freeing uh but again i didn't know if anyone would be interested in it but you know things sort of came together i started going out with a woman who's now my wife who was head designer at Random House for covers and such. And when I was done with it, uh, she painted a hand-painted cover to it that looks exactly like a 77 novelization, which she even put in uh, creases like it was. It would look if it was a used book. You know, I wanted it to look like if someone stumbled across it, it could very well have been from the late 70s. She put in a fake ad that I wrote in the end. She put in a list of other novelizations that this author supposedly came up with. So. We had fun with it. I had fun with it. I put it out, didn't really hear much about it. And about two weeks later, a friend of mine who is a narrator and he does professional narration for movies and articles, New York Times, got in touch with me and said, can I have the rights to this, the audio rights? And I thought, sure, yeah, take it. Uh, you don't have to pay. Just you know, do with it what you will. Never in a million years thinking anything would be done with it. Two weeks after that, he called and said John Hamm was attached to play Stinker. And Ray Seahorn, who was in Better Call Saul, was attached to play his girlfriend, Paul F. Tompkins, Andy Richter, all these amazing uh, actors, Philip Baker Hall from um, Bookie Nights signed on. And this was all through Audible, Amazon's Audible. And it's, it was an important lesson to me that sometimes, you know, I could have pitched this for the rest of my life and no one would have purchased it. Sometimes people just need something tangible. To hold in their hand and say, oh, I see. This is what you're going for. And when it's tangible and it's it's tactile, they can hold it. It becomes, it has more weight to it. So once it was out there as a book, people started coming on board. And John Hamm came on board for a very specific reason. His father worked in the trucking industry in the late 70s. And he grew up watching these movies. So that was really the first of the self-published books that I did. This is four years ago or so. And it's been five or six since then. But that was the impetus for that first book. Yeah, I was I was going to ask about the cover art because it looks
0: so authentically like a, you know, 1970s $1.99 Bantam paperback or, or, or something. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate like the, I guess you've done this with a bunch of your books, like the sort of like frame narrative, you know, like it's not, you didn't write it. It's a book you found at a garage sale, or it's a novelization of a movie that doesn't exist, or... Uh, or it's somebody, and it's got so many notes in it in the margins of a like a made-up person who's reading it and and kind of responding to it. Uh, you know, I guess that's slouchers where that happens, kind of kind of cynically. Yeah, it's really clever. It's just a. I mean, obviously the stories are funny, but like coming up with like a you know pretext to tell them
2: that way really adds to it as well. So well, I like I always like that in comedy. I hate books that read across it parody or satire. I don't think it needs to be announced. You know, if people are confused a little bit, I find nothing wrong with that. If I had stumbled across it and thought it was real and then discovered it wasn't, I would have loved that. And I've done that with a lot of books. I mean, I like the back story to this. I think it adds depth to it. Um, I always liked Andy Kaufman growing up. And he knew it wasn't real what he was doing. But there was never a wink to the audience. And it was almost a respect for the audience. And if people believe that this new Randy book was actually a memoir I found at a garage sale in Poolsville, Maryland, you know, let them believe it. I really don't care. I mean, to me, it adds some interest to it. And that would also entail the look of it. I don't want it to look fake. I don't like fake. And I think there's something to be said for the margin of error. It it widens. You can get away with more when I didn't write the book. I didn't put it. I just found it. And here it is. And whether you like it or not. I wasn't the author of it. So here you go. Enjoy. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to I'm going to
0: briefly put on my English professor hat here to say that that's like all early novels are like that, too. Like Robinson Crusoe is meant to be like the true stories. And everyone knew it was bullshit. But like, that's how it worked. Right. And and so it's Jonathan Swift, all these people. So you're part of the literary canon at this point. I think you're safely inserted into that tradition.
2: One of my biggest influences is Borges. I think he's an absolute. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And one of the things I read by him as a teenager, I never forgot. Borges had an idea for a novel, but didn't feel like writing the whole novel. So what he did instead, was he wrote a book review on this imaginary book. And that blew my mind that you don't have to write a novel. You can take it to another level and do whatever you want, but still get across your ideas. And that to me was a work of genius.
0: Yeah. Well, that, that applies to a lot of like when you're writing like short humor stuff, too, for, you know, the stuff in like McSweeney's in the New Yorker, you, you know, sometimes you tell the story through like this really small window, like uh, emails or or like, you know, the the Craigslist ad about the thing that really happened or whatever. And, and it's just like it's fun to kind of play with with format that way and see what you can come up with and, and new ways. It to is tell fun. A story. Yeah.
2: Right. And it's all Trojan horse anyway. I mean, what you're getting across are satirical ideas. But within this other format and why make it the format you would read written by someone who went to the Iowa Writers Workshop or someone who wrote about 1950s Connecticut suburban dads making their way into Manhattan I didn't grow up with that it doesn't interest me and. This, to me, is more interesting and a little more fun. I mean, there's no reason why we can't have fun with this stuff.
1: Well said. Well said. I
0: also want to give a, a shout out to your book. Uh, speaking of fake documents, uh, Welcome to Woodmont College, uh, which has just been reissued. And you co uh, sorry, I can't remember your co-author for that. That's Jason.
2: Uh... Jason Roder. He's an author, incredible author. He has a number of books out. He was an Onion headline writer. For a while, came up with a very famous headline about uh school shooting. The one they that always, was always use, brought yeah. up every time there's a school shooting. That's exactly right. Yeah. And um, he's just genius. So we had this idea and put it out and it was put out by McSweeney's in digital format only. I mean, it was I was appreciative of them putting it out and they helped design it, but to me, it always needed to be hard copy paperback. And that's what we're putting out now through uh weekly humorous books. So that that is available. Yeah, it's really it's just like a perfect takedown
0: of Every, every element of like how colleges try to sell themselves and all the ridiculousness that and those of us who who work in higher ed, I'm like, this could not be satire parts of this. I'm like, yeah, I've I think
2: we had that happen last year. That that kind of makes sense. Uh well, that was a real throwback to National Lampoon, the high school yearbook, and all that sort of thing, which sort of disappeared. I mean, that's another case of I tried selling that and no one in the world wanted it. They went out to various publishers. You know, publishing now and humor is very specific, it's very difficult. I think publisher sensibilities our agent sensibilities do not match our sensibility. And, you know, if you just go through the humor section of most bookstores, it's very dead on, pretty mainstream. And uh, this was a case w- which I thought it was a, something that would appeal to publishers, but it was something they were zero interested in.
0: Yeah, as someone who's currently querying agents with a comedy book proposal, <laughs> I'm experiencing that uh, that feeling as well. It's, it's tough sledding out there, but... Uh... But why do it? Why not just put it out yourself? You can do that. Yeah, research. I mean, that's that may be where it's heading, you know. I mean, that's uh I think a lot of people have, and and obviously, you know, you've got kind of a best case scenario outcome, you know, for, for that happening. So, so that's awesome. Um okay, well, as I as I said, you know, uh you've your your books of interviews, you've already talked. I don't know if you I guess you did a lot of those interviews over the phone, probably, but I'm sure some of them were in person. So You've already met a lot of people who you don't ha- you don't need to invite to a dinner party maybe you want to double up and and bring someone back who you've spoken to before um so yeah one thing we always kind of ask here is is you know this sort of that question like what three people living or dead uh would you would you invite to a dinner party and we're always kind of curious like if you've ever encountered that question before you know Gary says it's sort of a, a common like you know college application job interview type thing or like the you know, they always, it's one of those questions you get in like the Proust questionnaire or something like that, or the, those, you know, New York times interviews with authors, things like this. Just curious, have you ever
2: like kind of encountered this question before or, or been asked it or had to think about it or never? No. In fact, when you asked me to be on it, that is the first time I have ever thought about this. And I narrowed it down to about six and then choosing three from that was difficult, but I found it very interesting because I think a lot of people who, uh, whom I admire, I don't think would necessarily be Good guest to talk with. And, you know, people say Jesus a lot. Would he be such a great guest? I mean, he speaks Aramaic and talks about wood and carpentry. And he's only 33. So what does he know about the world? So that really wouldn't interest me. So what I did do was sort of think about people who influenced me. And I think, and really people I would love to actually talk with at a dinner party. And I don't like to attend dinner parties. I hate small talk. So a lot of thought went into who I would choose. For this specific party,
1: and 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 you're right. Like the more you, uh, well, there's two there's two kind of things here. Like, you know, who are you? Who's asking this question? Because if you're trying to get into a college, you know, you're gonna yeah. say, yep, you know, oh, I would I would dine with Socrates and, oh, uh, right. and you know Bill Gates, and and it's like, well, no, you wouldn't. You yeah. know, that would that just wouldn't be fun. You wouldn't be able to have dessert if Jesus were there. You know, there'd be you know and then oh if it's if if you're on a date you know somebody says oh then you're going to want to appear somehow else that's right you know so yeah and the more you the more you take your finger and scratch the more you have to say well yeah you know i don't want to like go through a translator when i'm talking to somebody i don't want to explain pizza you know i don't want to worry about this person being you know offended by my music you know so if you really delve into it you can um
2: no, that's a great point. I mean, I think there's a bullshit answer. You know, people would mention Plato. But do you want to hear him speak in Latin about shadows and caves? I don't. No. So, the, I don't And then either. there's a realistic no. I, answer. I don't
1: either. I don't either. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: I mean, I had been thinking about this the past few days. If someone was sitting next to me, who would I want to talk and make small talk with? And these are honest answers. This is not bullshit to get into a school or to get a job so that's what I found really interesting about this since no one had asked before it, it it was fun to to think about literally who I would want next to me
0: I I think you're right that a lot of people have that you know the idea that the people who they most admire are also like well known to be uh like at the time and it's sort of that never meet your idols thing um we had a uh, Chris monks from McSweeney's on last year and he wanted to meet it's like I love Van Morrison's music yeah Want to meet Van Morrison, but also kind of don't want to have to talk to Van Morrison. Oh, he's
2: an asshole. There's, there's a case of, um, and that's the thing over the years, I don't interview assholes. If I know they're an asshole or have heard they're an asshole or difficult, like Christopher Guest yeah, yeah. or Woody Allen or Albert Brooks, if I've heard you're difficult, I don't want to interview you. Life is yeah. too short. I don't want to do it yeah it's just whatever you might get
0: out of it, it's not going to be worth it that's for sure no um
1: and also if you invite the orangutan from clint Eastwood, yeah. which way but loose yeah. will you have to serve bananas or will the orangutan eat regular food i mean well, here's a question i
2: always i always wanted to ask uh, one orangutan was shot dead after he, he attacked the uh, uh food table on a on set
1: <laughs> i always
2: wanted to interview the handler for that and ask what the hell went wrong there like
0: nobody brought a tranquilizer dart that day either. They're just like, no. If he touches, uh, touches the banana bread, it's over. He'll never, he'll never learn, you know.
2: Right. Who thought it was a good idea to feed an orangutan uh, sugary donuts? I mean, where did that come into play?
0: Yeah, that's that's just that Hollywood '70s mystique, really. Let's let's coke <laughs> up a chimpanzee and see what happens. Uh, you know,
2: that's the Hollywood I miss. That to that's, me is classic Hollywood.
0: That's that's what Martin Scorsese's complaining about with the Marvel movies. No, no, coked up primates. <laughs>
2: I'm with, with him with that. on that one
0: yeah oh absolutely we all are it's easy 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 choice so where would you have a dinner party i mean there's a dinner party you don't have to you could have it at home as people often do or you know are you are you cooking food are you are you a chef are you ordering stuff
2: in what's your what's your plan for the the setting here? all right I'm. Um, i thought about this as well i'm not cooking anything and we've had some semi-famous people over my wife is an amazing cook but my job is to uh shop and clean i spend the days cleaning before and then after so she would do that and she's somewhat shy so i would be on the couch it would be in our apartment and i would be the one talking to these guests uh she would join us of course but certainly for the pre-dinner hors d'oeuvres it would be me only talking to these three people
1: so you've so you're taking on a lot there yeah in your apartment
2: in our apartment i don't like to leave my apartment
1: all right are you playing music are you yes
2: I have a very large album. Well, it would probably be uh, Wes Montgomery or uh, Jimmy Smith or Jimmy McGriff, some sort of jazz that doesn't overpower or scare those who have come from an earlier time.
0: It's true. Yeah. If there's, uh, if they're already freaked out enough by like electric lights, you don't want them to be listening to like, yeah, the <laughs> electric most.
2: light orchestra.
0: Exactly. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Although, Abra- although, Abraham Lincoln banging his head to Guar would be, uh, yeah. <laughs>
2: I've seen that in a dream. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So the doorbell rings. Yeah. And and all right. Are, are you wearing a sweatshirt or are you wearing a dinner job?
2: <laughs> no, I'm wearing whatever the hell I want to wear, which is probably what I'm wearing now. Khakis and a sweater. An and Orioles uh hat. an Orioles hat. Um now uh they don't arrive together. And the first guest who arrives is one of my biggest influences, and that would be Hal Ashby, a director from the 1970s, who put out a string of movies that have influenced me more than any other, whether it's Being There or The Last Detail. Uh, I think he's an absolute genius, and I think he did, with comedy, things that haven't been done before or since. Um, I think he's the uh, the high bar for comedic films. He was also a very interesting guy, very much a hippieish guy who even into his mid 40s, 50s, um, retained that sort of free spirit and basically said to Hollywood, fuck you, I'm going to do what I want. And these are the films that I want all tethered to character and very prescient in a lot of ways. Being there was really predicted Bush and, and Reagan and a lot of those morons who came into power. But he was also a very gregarious guy who unfortunately had problems with the system. And towards the end of his career, he wasn't able to do what he had done in the beginning of his career. Started off as an editor and learned most of his comedy that way. So he came at it from sort of the the bottom, which is very rare to become an editor who then becomes a director, but learned about comedy through knowing and seeing what worked and what didn't work, which is just as important in comedy, if not more important to know what does not work. He'd be someone that I always wanted to talk to and I think he'd be a first great guest. I mean, you have to be careful asking someone to come first because it's not easy for them. But he would be the first one who would arrive.
0: So, so obviously you're an admirer of, of it. Well, I mean, just sort of for our, I, I mean, I'm kind of looking through the list here what's sort of your 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 highlights of his films what are the ones that really kind of kind of mean something to you or, or your your favorites I guess
2: yeah I mean my absolute favorite is being there written, written by Jersey Kaczynski he was another genius yeah yeah and it really was
1: that film was that was a big deal like wasn't um Peter Sellers nominated for an Oscar for that?
2: yes he was and that Peter Sellers begged to have this job he said that character of Chauncey Gardner is me. Uh, I don't really, you know, I play these characters, but there's not much underneath and I can play this character better than anyone out there. And he begged for the job and he eventually got it and absolutely nailed it. I mean, when you look at him, he's not that old, but he may have been in his 50s, but he looks like he's ancient. And the way that's a very, very difficult character to play in a film where he is mistaken for being wise, but he's really an idiot. And it's a very American film, but Jersey Kaczynski uh, was not born in America. He came over post-World War II, which he had a terrible experience in and wrote about in The Painted Bird. But to me, that's a quintessential uh, American parody. And Peter Sell is another non-American, nailed that role as this American idiot. You know, you could I mean, as soon as this movie came out or just afterwards, Reagan came into power. And then all these morons who were mistaken for being wise or compassionate and to me this is a movie that nails it better than anyone else now he also did harold and Maud, which is a movie that i don't like as much as some people who are obsessed with it it's a big one for a lot of people yeah they're a huge yeah. huge it's a ballsy movie uh, about a teenager who in the movie, he falls in love with this older woman, but uh, in the script, the original script, he has sex with this woman, but they didn't allow it. You know, we're talking about Bud Cort, who was in his 20s, and Ruth Gordon, who was probably in her 70s or 80s. Yeah. And they had to cut that out. But it's a very interesting, very 60s movie about finding your true self and doing whatever you want and saying fuck you to everyone else. It's also incredibly dark, but in a way that's very light, which is really hard to pull off. And that's a movie I love. And then, of course, I think the greatest movie of all time is The Last Detail, which uh, features Jack Nicholson and um, Otis Young and uh, Randy Quaid as a young army soldier who gets arrested for stealing a few dollars from a charitable uh, box run by the general's wife. And it's about them as they cross the country and giving these two characters, these veterans, giving this younger kid one last experience before he goes away for seven years i think it's just an absolute work of genius and then of course there's shampoo with warren beatty which really nailed the 70s hollywood uh scene i think better uh than anyone and and, um coming home which i think is the best vietnamese uh, vietnam war movie which which really dealt with the ramifications rather than what went you know seeing what went over on in the jungle what went ho- uh, on when these you know veterans came home a lot of that was improvised um a lot of the speeches that were given that are so beautiful uh by john voight uh, were improvised and that's another movie that sort of combines sadness humor drama and pathos that i just think does it perfectly i think it's another perfect film
0: that's i've seen i've seen a few i have never seen the last detail though i gotta add that to the list that's uh i'm gonna i'm gonna oh. take your endorsement that that sound, sounds great from your description so yeah yeah I gotta, me neither
1: i'm adding that to my list too
2: yeah it's a work of genius and i think that you know i'm really particular when it comes to comedy films and there's very few people i think can do it well uh mike white would be an exception um, but you know, like a Judd Apatel, I don't really think nails it like a Hal Ashby. And this, to me, is not about the writer being funny or the director being funny or improvisation to the point where it's obnoxious. It's just all about character, Yeah. and it's just as sad as it is funny. And it's really heartbreaking. I mean, this is a kid whose life is just beginning, but it's really ended already for a stupid act he pulled for a sentence he was given for bureaucratic reasons which is very, I I think, post Watergate was very of its era in that sense, where those who are in charge shouldn't be in charge and those who are suffering shouldn't be suffering. I think across the board, um, it's just tone wise and visually uh, the perfect movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, fortunately, well, fortunately, after the 1980s, America learned its lesson and stopped trusting untrustworthy politicians and assholes who were uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. pretending to be someone else. Like, luckily that's in the past. Um, So what, What? what okay. So obviously you, 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 you know, the filmography, but it's, it's always kind of tricky. Like when you're talking to somebody about what they do to not like, what would you want to ask? Cause I know everyone no one wants to be like too much of a, a fan or whatever, or I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's part of your consideration, but what would you want to talk about with, with Hal Ashby? Like, what do you want to know? I guess.
2: Well, that comes into play, too. A lot of people don't want to talk or can't or are unable to talk about what they've produced. But I think he strikes me as someone who would be willing to talk about it. There are books that consist just of interviews with him. Um, I would talk about tone and comedy, but even more than that, about the films themselves, about his life and his struggles with Hollywood, where he produced a string of I considered the best movies in the 70s and then was shunted aside when the new kids came in, uh, Spielberg and, and others, for a different type of movie, which in some ways hasn't it never disappeared. I mean, when you see nope. the movie Star Wars and Jaws, which are genius, but to to the point now where it's 50 years later and you're seeing these Marvel comic movies, you want to just fucking kill someone. Yeah. Where a movie like this... It's still difficult to make. Um, I would love to have talked to him about what happened and why after Harold Amad, the last detail shampoo and coming home, being there and being there, he was not given the opportunity of free reign to do whatever he wanted to do. I mean, not only was he not given free reign, but he was punished and how that affected him. Uh, as a person and as a creator yeah i mean it's it's i mean the the sort of that era of the blockbuster
0: took over as you're saying i mean i i showed my uh my seven-year-old son um the original you know star wars trilogy recently and i was he liked it but i was i'm surprised i'm like this really seamlessly hits with a kid born in 2015 in the same way that it did for someone born in 1965 um and that's obviously just not True of, of you know, other
2: older movies, like other comedies from the 70s wouldn't really. I mean, going back to Smoking the Bandit, I sho- I showed my daughter the movie and she thought it was like something from outer space. And yeah, she yeah, couldn't yeah. figure it out. And I was showing her John Hughes movies because I wrote a novelization based on John Hughes movies. Um And she loved Breakfast Club, but she thought that Sixteen Candles was offensive in many ways. And and I looked at it through fresh eyes and she had a point. I mean, you have these Asian characters who are being treated as stereotypical. And uh, there's a rape scene uh, towards the end. Stuff you can't get away with. So a lot of these movies do not hold up. But that's what I like about how Ashby's movies. I mean, shampoo is very tethered to the 1970s in Hollywood, a very specific time and very specific place. But the rest of the movies could have taken place in anywhere. But the characters are so you you understand these characters incredibly well.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, obvi- there's sort of like a connection there between you know uh, your interest in his stuff and the 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 trucker movies too. You know, it's like these kind of movies that were common for a while like those kind of character driven comedies and um uh and obviously like the weird genre of the trucker they just don't really exist anymore well
2: they don't and these and these movies have their problems too i mean you know and i dealt with this in stinker Let's loose you you have asian characters who are you know stereotypical chinese tourists who are taking photos or you have very few african americans or there's a lot of gay jokes i mean these aren't perfect movies no they're very much of its time and place but I don't think there was a meanness to it that I think it was very inclusive for its time, uh, in a sense, um, that I don't see even in movies now where you have a lot of uh, variation in, in characters, but it just seems forced. It doesn't seem like it's uh, there for any other reason, but it has to be.
0: So I'm, how, I'm trying I'm looking up his Wikipedia here. Uh, sorry, just one second. I want to see when he... Um... Passed away, so he yeah he he died in 1988. So so kind of a, a long. Time. Can you think of a, a sort of a maybe it's a tricky question. Like, is there a movie from the past 30 years that you think he'd really like? Like, is there has there been a movie that kind of like captures
2: that kind of spirit? Boy, that's interesting. You I can didn't think, think on think that one. I don't know.
0: That's kind of a tough one, but
2: yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think it would be the, the the things that I like. Whether it's um you know freaks and geeks, whether it's Mike Mike White's current work, whether it's Albert Brooks' 70s movies, the he was around for that yeah you know it's very rare to find things that could have been made in, in the 70s uh that are at, were at the height of their uh comedic powers that are made today i mean there's just few exceptions there are some tv shows that i love like pen 15 yeah or uh modern family which i don't like sitcoms but my daughter's got me into Modern Family. I think it's brilliant. I mean, the writing on that show and the acting is, is incredible. Really sharp, so yeah. Incredible. So there, there's there's little things here and there, but I think that the most, you know, the general stuff out there is, is very mainstream and um, and that would go for books too. I mean, there's very few books that I find funny that are considered comedy or, or, or are supposed to be funny.
0: Yeah, no, that's, I'm always, there, there are a few writers who I can, you know, always find their stuff Funny, I just read Sam Lipside's new book. I don't know if you have read Sam Lipside stuff. Uh, he, He's—I
2: love Sam. He's amazing. He's and he's a great guy, and he's doing what he wants to do and putting it out there. Totally unique voice. I mean, that—that's one of the few people out there. He's terrific. But it is a short list,
0: right? Like, there's only a handful of people who I'm like, I know this will be a a, a a sure thing. And uh, yeah, it's always yeah. fun when those come out. But
2: well, I mean, and to be fair to the writers, a lot of times they're not allowed to do what they want. You know, they have great ideas. But producers or publishers shut them down or agents shut them down. You know, you're forced into having to do something. I've been forced into or, or I was told I, I should write YA novels. You know what? I don't want to write YA novels. I have no interest. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of writers out there who are writing things just to put food on the table that they don't want to write. And that's the freedom that I have by self-publishing where I have a day job where I can make money and have insurance and then on the side write what I want, how I want to do it. I mean that's all of it. We're all sort of you know that's
0: I think that's how a lot of people seemingly everybody who we kind of talk to who does any kind of comedy writing not everybody but like it's not like a hobby but you kind of need something you need something else to give you the freedom to do what you want to do right you need to it can't be your only it's tough when writing is your only source of income uh, or like writing a specific kind of thing you know
2: very 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 few people are out there making a good career at writing or performing the exact type of comedy they want to do.
1: Also you have to you have to exist in the world to see things that are funny
2: you know well right but at the same time you don't want you didn't get into comedy to write for shit my dad says you know the sitcom which i had a friend who wrote for so sometimes when you do end up being a professional comedy writer you end up working on things you don't want to work on and that's the freedom that i have where i don't have to write things that doesn't that don't interest me i do have to have a job i work at vanity fair and i work as a writer and editor and i write for new yorker but It allows me to put out these self-published books that, quite frankly, aren't bringing in a ton of money. I could not live off these books. But there's something to be said for being content. You know, I got into comedy writing to have fun, not to be forced to show up every day at a job I don't want to do. And I I think a lot of comedy writers find themselves in positions that they didn't uh, envision when they started off
1: you know mike i um when you uh, you mentioned ya novels and uh, you know how memory works you know we're we're kind of you know in this conversation about the the 70s i can't help but think of judy blue who was ubiquitous. Oh, yeah. yeah. in the late 70s early 80s but she was a genius absolutely and she was able to meld yes she was with i mean the most serious topics so why not? I mean, why not? Del- like, why not give it a shot? Like, try, try a, um, try stinker. Let's loosen a Judy Blue are you
2: there god it's it's be <laughs> well judy bloom was a case where she didn't get into it because an agent told her there was money in it she got into that writing because that's what interests her and she was never told what to do she just happened to write in a style that a lot of people liked and the same would go for beverly cleary who's another genius who just passed away i think at 103 years old yeah T- total genius and a lot of humor and very uh dark for kids subjects like parental separation divorce death and that sort of thing i mean the main reason i'm not doing it is because i don't feel i could bring to that medium um something that would interest kids and myself in putting it together would take a year to write and even within that concept they'll say all right write a ya novel well they don't really want a ya novel that i would want to write they wouldn't want to see that it would have to be very specific based on what's out there now what's a success and it just wouldn't come from the heart you know it would be for money purposes and i think readers can see through that
0: yeah you can uh it, it it's there's it's formulaic right so i mean you can't like you can't bring the orangutan on amphetamines into a ya novel that's <laughs> uh it's not yeah, uh, it wouldn't.
1: it uh, wouldn't uh, be good
0: yeah i mean you be... know it just it wouldn't it would be stale okay so it's you hal ashby appetizers Cocktails, whatever, whatever, music, whatever, sort of setting the stage. Second knock on the door,
2: who's showing up? This was a tough one. Um, I went to Tulane. I attended Tulane. I lived in New Orleans for a number of years. And um, one of the students there, much before my time, was named John Kennedy Toole. And he was Uh an author who uh, put out a book called Confederacy of Dunces. And it's a fascinating backstory where he was dealing with a top editor in new york and this top editor was incredibly patient with him would worked with him on the the uh book editing it and re-editing it but got to the point where he just had to say this is not working for me and john kennedy tool a young guy still in his 30s he was teaching english in new orleans was so upset by this that he ended up asphyxiating himself in a car with carbon monoxide very young so he died without this book seeing the light of day and his mom a few years later took this dirty manuscript it was typewritten notes on it and brought it to a professor at loyola walker percy and and said i want my son was a genius i want you to take a look at this book now in the foreword to the current edition of this book walker percy wrote you know, he's since passed away, but he wrote a foreword about what he thought about the situation, which was how often does someone come in with something that is going to be good? And he, this the woman was crazy. This is a Norlinian character. Uh, and he just thought, I'll, I'll appease her and I'll read the first few pages. I started reading. And after a number of pages, he thought this guy's a genius. I mean, it was like a lightning out of the blue because it just doesn't happen. And through Walker Percy, he got it uh, published by LSU Press in Louisiana, a smallish uh, college university press. And from there, went on to win the Pulitzer Prize. So it's one of those cases that just doesn't happen. It's a case about a guy putting out what he wanted and sticking to his guns. And really what appealed to me, too, was this guy was totally floating free in space. I mean, he was totally isolated. This is pre-internet. He didn't have the opportunity to self-publish it. And he died without knowing what became of this book and how influential it became for legions of comedy writers, including John Belushi up through the current day. There was also a sadness to John Kennedy Tool, which I sort of emphasized with, because I graduated out of Tulane into a pre-internet world. It was just coming in at that point. And it was very isolated, very few outlets. There was New Yorker, Playboy, Mad Magazine, Crack Magazine, a few others. But it was very isolating. And when I look back and see photos of John Kennedy too, he was also in the closet. He was gay and he was mentally ill. He was he was um crazy. I mean, he 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 either schizophrenia or or something. So he was totally alone and totally ahead of his time. So to be able to talk to someone like that and to tell them, first of all, you made a difference in so many people's lives, but also you're not alone, that there are other people who you know love your sensibility and you're not a failure and you don't have to kill yourself. And this is what happened. That sort of fascinates me. And also, he was known to be a very gregarious, incredibly funny guy who could do Uh, imitations of people, a very Southern style of comedy. And for that alone, I would want him at the party.
1: So when did you, when did you first read Confederacy of Dunces?
2: Well, that's the thing. I, I stumbled across the book in the library, Tulane library. And within the research division, they had first draft, uh, the original copy, you know, not the original, but Xerox. And it was fascinating to read it. And I read the book and I did not really like it. This was I was, you know, 18, 19 came across it uh, a few years later in a bookstore. And I thought, you know, what I'll try it again and then just absolutely fell in love with it. I think it is a very it's a youthful book, but I don't think it's a book that the youth can necessarily appreciate at, at first. It's very much about sadness and miscommunication and misconnection and about dealing with aging parents and madness in some cases. And I think I missed that. On the first go around, it's still such a popular
0: book. I mean, I I, uh, I had a, a, a you know a, a teaching assistant last semester. He was, yeah, he's probably I don't know how old he is, but he's probably under thirty. I was just taught taught a whole tutorial, kind of talking about it with students, and you know they they liked hearing about it. I mean, it's really lasted. I, I think I asked you know years ago on on Facebook like what people what was the funniest book anybody had ever read, and and that was the book that came up more often than than any other. Really, that was the novel that the people you know kind of. Thought was fun, which is so rare for a any any novel, really, let alone one that's, you know, forty-two years old now and or older really from when it was written. Well, it was very ahead of its
2: time. And and one of the, the criticisms of uh, the book that you know, in that it wasn't picked up by publishers, what it was it wasn't plot heavy enough, it wasn't freewheeling enough. A lot of it was um character driven and dialogue driven. But that's really what makes the the book so strong and lasting. That there's a looseness to it, there's a punkness to it, yeah, and there's certainly uh, a southerness to it. Where when you read this dialogue um, from different characters, that you know whether they're African American, white, gay, whatever, it really, really captures New Orleans, which is very specific in accent and in um how they you know how they talk, what they say, uh, even a Jewish character in there, uh Jewish Beatnik. And I don't think you could really get away with that now. I don't think a white person like John Kennedy Toole could could write a black character like this. It would look at be looked at as being offensive. But I think what's loved about the book is there's such a love for these characters. Yeah. And in, in no way are they mocking these characters. I mean there's truly a love for these local Norlinian characters um and i don't know really if the book would be published today i really don't know if it could be
0: well and you're right that it would be amazing to be able to talk to to john kennedy tool you know now he could see like the reception of the book i mean because there's a there's a statue right of uh, of ignatius uh, riley and I, I don't know somewhere in new orleans i'm not sure where yeah, exactly
2: but uh, right outside where it takes place right outside of the uh, department store where he meets his mom in the first scene there's also in museums the lucky dog cart where he works for a little bit um where oh yeah, can, yeah 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 he bought hot dogs in the french quarter which i wouldn't wish on anyone by the way right. <laughs> uh, they're still out there sounds like a bad draw yeah yeah i mean so that to me and it also brings back memories of new orleans um and how much i love it, it it's just um it captures that city which if you're not from there i don't know if you can capture i'm watching treme now which I really like, uh, but I don't know if it truly captures the city. The creator is from Baltimore, and he did an amazing job with with it and also with The Wire, but there's just something about Ignatius Riley that just captures the insanity of New Orleans, and Hmm. he's not necessarily a likable guy. He's very unlikable, as is his mother and are some of the other characters. But you can't help but like them because that's who they are and that's where they're from. And I just love that where it's it, it's not a likable in the Hollywood sense where he's always smiling this character. But he is likable because he's realistic and he's authentic and true to himself. Now, isn't that a book
0: that's sort of been in like, I don't know, was there a movie or has it been kind of in developmental hell for 15 yes. 20
2: years or something? I, I don't know. Well, It's yeah. I mean, going back to John Belushi, who wanted to play it and then uh, John Goodman. Uh, who's a resident in New Orleans and then other uh, directors, John Waters wanted to do it for a while. John Candy wanted to play, but it was never made into a movie, which I think is a good thing. I don't think it would be a um, necessarily effective. I mean, John Waters wanted to use divine as Ignatius Riley, as much as I love hmm. John Waters and divine. I think both are brilliant. I don't know if that would have worked, but what is interesting is I have a friend, Dave Boudos who uh bought the rights to the memoir not the memoir but the uh story behind the making of the book and there was he he came very close to making that into a movie Hmm. and uh there would be uh, an actor playing walker percy there'd be an actor playing uh john kennedy's mother about how the background of how that came into being i think it could have been done that way for some reason funding did not come through but I still think that would be a great story. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, to get it across. Yeah, you don't have to, because especially with any kind of,
0: as you say, like a, books that are so dialogue heavy, and that's where a lot of the humor comes from. You can only put
2: so much of that on screen, right, before it gets kind of tedious, yeah, you know? way and, down. I don't know if
1: if you could pull it off. I really don't. You get 50 points for mentioning John Waters. and um, David Simon? David Simon. <laughs> yeah. I love
2: them both. Um, yeah. And I actually am friendly with John Waters. He's a huge influence on me. And, you know, he would be amazing for a dinner party. But I just I sort of know him already. Uh, what he did when I was growing up in Maryland uh, was just outrageous. I couldn't believe it that, that was allowed. I mean, yeah. these movies were shot maybe 40, 50 miles north of where I grew up. And just the fact that he did it on his own. I mean, the things he did as a teenager, he restaged, going back to the Zapruder film, the Zapruder film on the streets of the suburbs of Baltimore <laughs> with Divine playing Jackie O. I mean, can you imagine doing that today, for God's yeah. sakes? And what that must have looked like in Maryland, which was Southern, in the 60s. I mean, that must have been madness and the balls and the punk aesthetic that this guy had to do that and still has. I I, I adore the guy. I love him.
0: Yeah, and his movies are ones that people those even those ones from the you know the 70s are people still talk about them and still kind of watch them and still like them, which doesn't isn't true for everything, you know, from that from that era. Um, yeah. it's rare to think about uh, Confederacy of Dunces, you know, it's really rare for a, a novel that's like a like a comedic novel to win something like the Pulitzer or the National Book Award. I know the um less, like Andrew Sean Greer's novel for right. five or six years it won, and it was like notable because it's like, oh, a comedy won the Pulitzer Prize. That never Never happens. Never Usually happens, it's so. much same with like, you can say the same thing for films and, and uh, you know, Academy awards, I guess. So yeah, it's kind of notable that way. It's always nice to see one of the the comedies, you know, even if it has like dramatic elements.
2: But not only to win the Pulitzer, but just the fact that this was published at all. It never would have been if his mother, John Kennedy Tool's mother, didn't go visit Walker Percy. And if Walker Percy hadn't read it, and if he hadn't then given to a friend at LSU. I mean, just so many things had to happen. It was, to me, that's the miracle. Yeah. That this product that very easily could have been thrown into a dumpster was not only made, but won the Pulitzer and then... Affected so many comedic minds, and with its sensibility, uh, it was so ahead of its time that it could not have existed easily. That's what I find fascinating. A rare thing to happen. Um,
0: okay, so so far with your first two guests, you've gone with the dead answer for for the 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 people living or dead. Are Are you sticking with 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 the dead, or are you, have you chosen someone who's who's still
2: alive for your third guest? Very much dead. Okay, and perfect. This yeah. will be the third one to arrive. And a huge influence on me. Um, I think she's an absolute genius. There are certain literary minds like Borges or Nabokov that almost are from the future or from a distant planet. I mean, they're, they're just higher than ours. They work on different levels. And this mind fascinates me in her writing because she was so insular, but she wrote about the world. And it would be Emily Dickinson who... Okay. um is i think an absolute genius and there's a lot of connection between poetry and comedy where each word each syllable each comma has to be there for a reason for sure and when when you look at her writing there's nothing not there for a good reason um she was also very insular very reclusive supposedly there's not that much known although she supposedly did have a lover spent most of her life in her house in a small town of amherst and yet wrote about the universe not just earth and or america but the universe and did so in a way that uh, just could appeal to anyone it it just astonishes me that someone like that could have emerged and done what she did i mean it's like a higher power like she had a was a vessel of god and it's another case of it very easily could have not been seen all for sure, yeah. these poetry all this all these poems could very easily not have been seen and you know there's not much known about her but i've always thought that you know there was a shy i mean i'm imagining what i emily dickinson was like i'm sure there was a shyness but i think beyond that shyness if she trusted you if she liked you she would open i'm imagining I'm fantasizing. So I always wanted to be able to meet her. And that's another one saying your work is going to be is going to change the literacy and literature. And we want you to know that that you weren't alone. And that what you did alone, changed the world and changed many people's lives. Uh, So that would be someone that I would love to sort of Dig down deep, and you can see the humor in her poetry too. Oh, for I mean, sure. This is, yeah, you know it's not someone up, up on stage cracking jokes, but she was a genius even comedically. uh And I would think she would be funny and fun to talk with.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're. It's it's a really good example of like you know. I mean, all those poems were just in a sock drawer or something. Or you if you look at some of the like the original manuscripts, they're written on the back of like a telegram or something. Like they're just jotted yep. down anywhere, scrap paper. And now they're, they're, they're obviously like these, these world classics and you're, you're totally right. They're, they're, I mean, her poems are all kinds of things, but funny is definitely part of it. I always find it's like, I don't know. I, I, you know, I, am not a, I'm not a, a, a a poet or anything, but I teach poetry in my, my English classes and her poetry is always, I find the hardest to read out loud because she uses like those weird spaces um, and like weird punctuation. and, And often they just kind of stop you know, like the poem just kind of trails off and I'm never sure how to read it out loud, you know?
2: I don't think they're meant to be read out loud. I mean, that's one of my peeves I have with comedic writing is a lot of it isn't meant to be read out loud. You know, Mm -hmm. a genius like David Sedaris writes for it to be read out loud and then he edits based off the audience reactions. I've done, I actually opened for David a number of times and my comedy is meant not to be read read out loud. I mean, I could see that from the audience reactions. It's, It's, I don't think, Uh, When you write for the page, it needs to be read out loud. I think, you know, I write it alone in my head and I give it out and readers read it alone in their head. And there's different type of comedy that works on different levels. And I don't think I think the the poetry that she wrote was so insular, uh, so interior that uh, it was almost it was it was to to read it out loud is almost like to ruin her privacy or something. It's a very private thing.
1: So she
2: was never published when she was living? No, she was. She, she had a few poems published uh, as letters to newspapers and little magazines. And uh, I think there were some people who recognized her talent, but it was only after she passed away that people put, And you know, and as you were saying, it was a lot of it was written on scraps. You can buy books where it's uh, you can see what the scraps look like. I mean, we're talking very difficult to decipher. So it took some effort to decipher this and to put it into neat books, you know, so it would look, you know, so an an average reader could understand it. And I think it was at that point where people were like, this is a genius. And um, I don't think that aspect at all was uh, recognized about her while she was alive.
0: No, for sure. I mean, yeah, she didn't like write a book manuscript. Like all the all the titles of the poems are just they're just the first line or whatever. And there there's numbers associated with them, but that's just editors. They just had to put them in some order, you know. Um, she yeah, tried to publish a few, didn't have a lot, and she died quite young, of course. Who knows what would have happened if if she'd lived longer. But uh uh but yeah, no, it's an, it's there's a good that's sort of like a good kind of parallel with with Kennedy Tool there. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Those, those two would have a lot of, a lot to say to each other.
2: I just feel bad for people who float alone in space and who died not knowing their connection and the connection they make with readers or with viewers as artists, because, you know, it's easy for us to say, oh, Emily Dix and John Kennedy tool, people love them. Well, John Kennedy tool died on a side road in the South, um, killing himself with carbon monoxide fumes. He didn't know anything. He didn't know and never envisioned anything, let alone he would, um, have the effect he did on people so it just kind of it's kind of heartbreaking um there's a lot of people out there who are known who are well known who are publishing who don't deserve to be necessarily and there's a lot of people who uh never got the recognition self-recognition that they deserved and these are two of those geniuses
0: now as you know i i i i think when i listed we, on our first episode we both did our own dinner party guests and i i had herman melville who's kind of in the same camp he was he was more well known in his lifetime by the time he died kind of forgotten and if you know they hadn't found billy bud in a drawer after he died yeah. and published it his reputation wouldn't well, have been there um and yeah those
2: are always interesting figures because it's kind of this big what if right like what if you know that just went to the that's the thing it shows you how arbitrary it is and when you research anyone i'm doing research on elton john now i'm going to interview him for new yorker it very easily could have not happened he, he very yeah. easily could have been back in the suburbs of london it, it happens a lot less frequently than it doesn't happen. Uh, it, it doesn't happen all the time. And that's really a lesson I think creators need to take where nothing is guaranteed. You really have to sort of push. And even uh, groups or even artists, geniuses that you think were inevitable, like the Beatles, could have very easily not have happened. So if it could have not happened for the Beatles, it could very easily not happen for you as well. Yeah, I mean, luck's
0: such a big part of anything, and and you know, obviously, there's more to it than that sometimes, but but it's a big it's a big factor, you know.
2: Huge and and per- perseverance—you have to continue down the road. You can't, well, I'm so, I, you down know. Down I read the
0: them; they, they always do sort of these um like you know top 100 books of all time lists or something. Uh, and it's weird. I I saw one of those a few years ago. It was one of them from the year 1900 and you know a couple of the books on the list but most of them are things that you know people then thought were these classics for all time and now it's stuff nobody reads at all so i mean even even that can change or like the 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 you know um sight and sound greatest film of greatest films of all time they're always Jockeying and and changing it around, and and you know nothing's kind of permanent that way. But
2: right, and that's something you cannot control. I mean, uh you just you can't control what comes after you. But if you're someone like Borges or Nabokov or Emily Dickinson, you put out what interests you the most. You don't put out YA novels, and that hopefully, if if it pleases you, hopefully it'll please others. And you can't control how it will affect people. But I think if you stay true to who you are as a creator and a writer, as an artist. That's really the best way of being remembered rather than doing something because an agent in L.A. says you should do it. Uh, That's not the way to go about it. So is there anything like, especially, I guess, Emily
0: Dickinson's the oldest, like from the the furthest back in time, you know, person you've, you've kind of chosen here from the 19th century. Is there anything you'd want to show her from like, I don't know, the past 150 years, I guess, that she wouldn't have seen? Like, what do you think would impress someone like like dickinson who's such a, a you know such a, a bright mind such an intelligent person what do you think would sort of like what would you want to show her about you know modern life that might be of interest
2: well i the choice was between emily dickinson and walt whitman who's another genius i think walt whitman would have been impressed with modern technology i don't think emily dickinson would have been i think it would have been uh nature and i think her interest would be about those who are still in touch with nature and aren't separating themselves creating distance between themselves and others through technology i think that would have disturbed her i think what she was interested in then would would be what she would still be interested in. that would be my guess that's probably true yeah you'd
0: have to like take her out of the city and and kind of you know get a get a sense of where's wall women would be on TikTok or something
2: i think he's a a good yeah. a good self-promoter and uh uh, yeah assume. i don't think apps yeah. that could recognize ferns or flowers would really uh, who knows i don't know i'm talking out of my ass but i think what she would be what she would be appreciative of is, is things that existed when she was around that are st- the beauty and that are still existing whether it's looking up at the stars or looking down at the ground.
1: So there's a real triumphant air to this party like John Kennedy Tool rings the bell walks in and you say oh like you you want to be with <laughs> her and then yeah. I mean you say Emily Dickinson, like 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 let me introduce you to Amazon.com, type in your own name and see what pops up. Like you're everywhere. Right. Yeah. Like I mean, you're you're um what's that word where um when authors put the uh, like a quote at the start of their books?
0: Oh epigraph. Epigraph.
1: Epigraph. I just read a book called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, and Emily Dickinson was was in the epigraph.
2: Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and you'll see it uh, as an epigraph in Woody Allen movies. That's yeah. what that's what I love is saying to these people: you are now loved. And in in twenty five years, fifty years, my daughter might pick um, people we don't know, even know about right now for yeah. her dinner yeah. party that are affecting her and her sensibility and her creativity and her generation in ways that we never would have predicted. I mean, how many people who were alive around Emily Dickinson could ever have conceived of this woman who lived a, alone or with her father in a house in amherst who would change the world it's just was inconceivable so a lot of the fun from my standpoint would be i think if it came to technology would be look at this when you type in your name on this thing called google on the world wide web look how many people you've affected i mean we're talking someone who probably knew a hundred people in her life uh you would type it in her name in now emma dickinson you would come up with 10 million results how yeah, amazing yeah. is that
0: yeah no that's a, a fun way to start googling yourself is when you're already extremely uh, famous and and have been for 100 years so well that's
2: the only fun way is, is yeah. to google yourself after you're dead because if you do it while you're alive it ain't gonna be so fun that's
0: been my plan so far yeah i'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> i'm coming back just for that okay so i mean this is like a much more uh like you know basic concern but do you do you care about what kind of food you're serving at this dinner party with these guests or are you just like whatever there's that like, obviously, that's not the
2: main thing, but you still have to do a dinner. That's hilarious. I've never heard of uh, food choices being chosen for a dream guest list. That's funny. Uh, I would it wouldn't even matter because we would be talking. It, it would be drinks more so than food, uh, just very good wine where it would loosen people up. The food would be secondary. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's impossible to make
0: everybody happy anyway. And who knows what people are going to. <laughs> are going to eat anyway, but uh, all right. So, yeah, that that's that's probably the right approach. If you're if the the goal is to have the conversation, you don't want to like have everybody with their mouth filled with, you know, giant meatballs or something the entire time.
2: Right. And then again, you don't want to feed Emily Dickinson microwavable uh, cheese poppers. You know, you, no, that- you do want to be a little bit uh, high end when it comes to that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. They didn't have those in Amherst. Uh, they, no. they still might not. I have no idea, but, uh, but it might, it might be disappointing. Um,
1: they should. Yeah. Microwavable cheese poppers.
0: Yeah, I'm sold. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm already, that's my dinner party plan settled as well. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I, I was really happy to, 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 to hear the, the, the folks at your dinner party. It sounds like a, a really, uh, Gary's right. Yeah. Kind of a triumphant dinner party. You know, a lot of people getting a, a bit of posthumous redemption you know and and seeing how yeah. much they're they're kind of loved and appreciated in
1: the future which is nice. there's a gratitude to your choices yeah that's really, that's really sweet that's really moving
2: well i think a lot of young writers including myself are too hard on themselves and i'm not anywhere within one percent of these geniuses but if i could go back and talk to my earlier self it would be enjoy life a little bit more don't be so hard on yourself you you may not be You may not be uh, published right now in New Yorker or anywhere for that matter. You may be working retail for 10 years in suburban Maryland. But if you stick to your guns and write what you want, uh, good things can happen and you just never know. And it it just, to me, is heartbreaking to see unrecognized genius and just knowing these people died without knowing their importance, especially with John Kennedy and a lot of writers. You know, it's not a happy life. There's a lot of ups. Sometimes there's a lot of downs. And uh, it's not easy uh, to certainly stick with something that uh, even into your fifth decade is not selling. But you do have to be kind of um, stubborn and a bit of a dick and just say, this is what I like. I'm sorry. I don't want to do a YA novel. This is what I'm doing. And uh, hopefully someone will eventually find it.
1: Were you an English major at Tulane?
2: Yeah, I was English major. Uh, mid 20th century specialty, which left me with absolutely zero job prospects. So I ended up working. I I had worked there earlier in Maryland. There was in Virginia, there was a uh, record store called Kent Mill Records. At one point, they had 32 locations. And I ended up working there from 15 until 25 off and on. And I went there to work after college. And I really felt like I was totally alone in the world that uh, no one, I would never reach anyone. And that feeling is just awful. Um, I wish I had traveled more and and been more outward, but I was very insular and I barely left the apartment, just went to work. It's just a miserable life. It makes you as a human unhappy and it makes your writing not as rich. You really do have to open yourself up. And that would be one thing I would tell myself if I could go back.
0: Yeah. It's so hard. I think when you're kind of like when you're you're younger and you want to do this kind of writing to have like the confidence to just go for it right because you're always like well you kind of out think as you're saying like you you kind of think you're too hard on yourself you're too critical of it whereas like it's the most cliched advice in the world but like the best way to get good at writing get good at writing is to just do it right i mean just just keep just keep trying just you know don't don't think about it just do it and usually something good comes out as a result of it so
2: well don't look at it as a competitive sport yeah. like i looked at it you have to open up yourself to other people and the people who you're coming up with they're not competitors there are people who those are the people who will hire you in the future and uh, not only will your writing become better but you'll have more success career wise if you reach out to like-minded people which is a lot easier now than it was when i was in high school and college it was very difficult and so that's one advantage of of the internet is that there are like-minded people you will find them and if you put in the effort it can happen that connection
0: yeah, I mean, that's uh, I, I I think like, you know, the the sort of like the McSweeney's humor page started when I was doing my, my undergrad. And I was like, this is cool. This is a way of getting, you know, a, a new daily funny thing every day. And then it took me another like 20 years to realize I could do it, too. But still, it was uh, it was it was the the, the seed was planted. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's but it's so much easier than, yeah, when you'd have to be, you know, John Kennedy tools sending your one types, typeset manuscript to one publisher in New York or. Emily Dickinson it's writing a very letter difficult. one guy in Boston. Yeah,
2: I mean, there's more opportunity now than there ever has been for writers. And you mentioned McSweeney's. That was the opening gate for me. I mean, I had been submitting and getting into Mad and Cracked and some other, you know, small zines sold at the Tower Records on Rockwell Pike. But McSweeney's was the first time where I saw that sensibility, and it was like, okay, this yeah. there are people out there who have my sense of humor. And that was the first place I started getting published in 98, 99. I mean, to the, it was so early. Dave Eggers was still the editor. Wow. Yeah. At that point. But that was really an opening for me. And that's, that's so exciting. And I think that should happen in every writer's life. You're not alone. There are people who would appreciate what you do. You just have to find that crowd.
1: Well said. Well said, Mike. Thank you. And on that note, on that note, thank you very much for your time, your insight. and. Uh, Sharing your dream dinner party guest
2: with us. Thank you, and I'm going to take you up on that Baltimore offer. I will be down there
1: anytime, anytime. You got 50 points for mentioning David Simon and John Waters. <laughs> you know, the, to redeem them at some point.
2: Two of Maryland's own. <laughs> have you asked David Simon to be on the show? We no. <laughs> no. I don't know how, how. How does one ask David Simon to be on the show? We'll have to figure that out. We haven't
1: up. asked John either. Oh, yeah, so we'll no. <laughs> But, I can uh, send you
2: a uh, an email for David Simon if you guys want. I don't, I don't know it offhand, but I can find out. All right, we'll 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 roll the dice. Why not? That's the fun of having.
0: They let, as Gary was saying, they let everybody have a podcast these days. So we can <laughs> uh, we can we can we can lure lure in someone else. But uh, we really appreciate you being on. Um, everybody, uh, uh check out uh, uh, Mike's uh, new books that are out this week: Randy and and Stinker Let's Loose, um, and the new uh print edition of of Welcome to Woodmont. Uh, Mike, it was a pleasure talking to you. Really glad you could be on the, the podcast. Uh, thanks again. Thanks for sharing your list.
2: This was super, super fun. And I, I really appreciate you guys having me on and just to be able to talk about people I never am able to talk about. You know, usually typical comedy podcast. I'm not going off about Emily Dickinson or John yeah. Kennedy Tools. So just for that alone, I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks a lot. Um, And, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, this has been...
0: Uh, The official Dream Dinner Party podcast, first episode of 2023. I'm your host, Ross Bullen. And
1: I'm Gary Almeter. Thank you. We'll see you next time. (laughs) All right. See everybody
0: later. Thanks for listening. The official Dream Dinner Party podcast is hosted by Gary Almeter and Ross Bullen. Terry Bullen produces the podcast. Our theme music is Cruzeiro by Eaters. If you want to support the show, like, subscribe, leave a review, or share this episode with your friends. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.